This episode of Money Reimagined is sponsored by SIBO Digital. You're listening to Coindesk's Money Reimagined with Michael Casey and Sheila Warren. Hello and welcome to Money Reimagined. I'm Sheila Warren. Well, it's been a year in digital assets here in 2023. No shortage of exciting content, craziness. I feel like every week, Michael and I were just racking our brains to figure out what the focus should be. I'm here to present some best of episodes from this year, two of my favorite episodes that marked, in my mind, really important conversations that helped change my thinking, and I hope yours as well. If you miss them the first time, here's a chance to catch up. First, I'm spotlighting an episode that I recorded with Noelle Atchison when Michael was on vacation. This was an episode where Noelle and I talked about everything from Bitcoin being in a bear. Is it still in a bear? What does a bear market even mean? We talked through the importance of Bitcoin ETFs, and we got into my favorite topic, geopolitics. What's happening in India? How do we think about the Indian market? What's happening with the BRICS alliance and its expansion, particularly in the context of reducing dependence on the US dollar? I hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed recording it. Noel, let's get right into it. It's so great to see you. Sheila, always great to see you. Thanks very much for inviting me to join you today. It's a fun day. I mean, you are are straddling the world. You're in California, (laughs) if I'm not mistaken. I'm over in Europe. And and this is going to be a lot of fun because while crypto markets have been quiet over the summer, they certainly haven't been idle. No kidding. You know, and I think if anything, people are wondering, I think let's just get to the question on top of mind for most of our folks who are into crypto and, and not the lay people who tend to join us, which is what's going on with this bear market? How long is this going <laughs> to last? Why aren't we seeing a little more of the of the usual volatility, right? Which is, we've come to think of as a feature, not a bug. Uh, what's that about in your view? Uh, there's so, so much to unpack there, but I'm going <laughs> to start off with a fairly controversial view and that we are not in a bear market mm-hmm. anymore. I mean, look how much Bitcoin is up since the beginning of the year quite double, but not far from that. And there's been just so much going on. Institutional interest is low. So if you want to go by that definition, I suppose you could say it's a bear market. But no, I go by it's done pretty darn well. It has outperformed stocks easily. And it also, Sheila, depends on what currency you're looking at. If you look at Bitcoin versus in the dollar terms, then it's up. I haven't checked the figures today, but it's what, 70% last time I checked, mm-hmm. 76%. Whereas the art in the Turkish lira, it's up something like 120%. In Argentinian pesos, it's up over 200%. So again, I don't think we're in a bear market. It entirely depends on the point of view. That said, the institutions are yet not interested. They are standing on the sidelines for now, which is very strange when you consider the relative risk in crypto versus a whole lot of other assets that they are invested in. I am of the belief that we have an almighty stock market crash coming because there's no way the consumer can hold up and stock prices are discounting consumer strength. It's, they're discounting Fed cuts in the, near, in the near term. They're discounting a soft landing. I think all of those are pipe dreams. I also believe bonds are incredibly risky investment at the moment because of the misconception of what the Fed really is after here, which is bringing down inflation at, you know, whatever the cost, and they have plenty of tools in their arsenal to ensure that the financial system continues, whatever interest rate, rate whatever interest rates are. So going, um, tracking slightly, it's um, the bit, the institutions are surprisingly quiet at the moment. One, because of the macro uncertainty, they've got a lot on their plate at the moment, just trying to figure out the direction of the asset classes they are more used to. And also, too, you touched on this already, so we can dive into that. There is very little volatility in crypto markets today, and that is a problem. Volatility in crypto markets is not a bug. It's a feature, and its absence is the main reason behind the low liquidity, which is keeping the large investors out. With low liquidity, they run slippage risk when they get in with large orders, and they run exit risk in not being able to exit should they need to. And anything but large orders, this does not worth their time. I knew you would go there and I love it because I think what is a bear? It's all contextual. And you have to look at specifically Bitcoin, but I'd say crypto in general, compared to what are your other options? Are people really investing in real estate at scale right now? Is that a thing that seems wise? I guess it depends on where you are in the world, right? So in so many ways, I I couldn't agree more. I think people are looking at 
the the extended caution, shall we say, of institutional investors and overpegging to that, if you will, as an indicator of where the market actually is now. Next question for you, though, is given that we do have some positive signaling around Bitcoin ETFs, well, it's mixed. Okay, fair enough. We've extended some applications. The SEC's extended applications here, but Grayscale, you know, got a positive outcome. Why are we not seeing more institutions uh, engaging with Bitcoin? Uh, What's your view on that? Well, how much, I guess, do you think, how important do you think, first of all, threshold question, how important do you think a Bitcoin ETF is, right, to institutional investors? How important should it be? Different question. And then why do you think institutional investors aren't necessarily reacting to this signal such as it is? (laughs) In order, yes, very, and it's the lack of volatility. Yes, (laughs) Yes, <laughs> they, yes, investors should be focusing on the likelihood of a Bitcoin spot ETF. And let's throw the Ether spot BTF in there as well. Why not? Uh, why is this important? Because it will bring in new investment. It's a convenient wrapper. And let's face it, you and I are fairly used to managing crypto wallets, but most people aren't. They're, they've improved so much over the years, but they're still kind of finicky. And your average investor who just wants to do a couple of taps on his or her screen isn't necessarily going to, you know, surround with the downloading the wallet and the seed phrases. It's kind of it's kind of a hassle. So when it is as easy as, again, a couple of taps on, on your screen or just telling your broker, please get this Bitcoin ETF, I mean, to get some exposure for portfolio diversification reasons, even if you're not going to buy into the whole decentralized ethos, just for diversification reasons, it makes sense. If it's easier, there will be new funds coming in. And Sheila, this is something that we often tend to overlook. Every single bull run is driven by new funds coming in. It tends to be institutional funds to start with, because that is the smart money. They have different risk profiles, etc. We know the bull run is nearing its end or running out of steam when the retail starts to come in. That's generally the latter half of it. But the institutions are still waiting for some signals, one of which is, one of which would be, I should say, the approval or listing, or actual listing of Bitcoin spot ETFs, whether they care or not, because I'm sure they have plenty of smart people on their staff who could handle custody for them. They're thinking about what everyone else is thinking. It's not so much what I'm going to do. It's what is everyone else going to do? And can yeah. I get ahead of that? So yes, the spot Bitcoin ETF is very important for the markets, and it is looking increasingly likely. I think it's going to happen this year, latest, obviously, um, spring of next year. But I think there are strong incentives for the SEC to get ahead of this and to approve all of the applications in one fell swoop so that they can't be accused of picking favorites, even though I'm sure they're quite tempted to do so. (laughs) Probably that's not a minefield they want to wade into. And as for why are they not doing so right now? One, they don't see the momentum there yet. Now, there are always exceptions, and I think we're starting to see some signs of that. But on the, in general, institutional investors like to think what other institutional investors are going to be doing. I'm not saying they're pack animals, but they do like to wait for some momentum. It's not there yet. For the reasons that we were talking about before, right now, the liquidity is just painfully low. It's risky. We want some volatility in the market. An interesting question, Sheila, is what will it take for that volatility to come back? And or what will it take? Sorry, what will it take for the liquidity to come back? Because that's the key. In fact, even more so than volatility, liquidity is what the institutional investors are waiting for. And the answer to that, in my opinion, is volatility. Why? Because market makers and the high frequency traders that are responsible for a large part of the liquidity in the crypto markets, they need that volatility to make money. The market makers hedge their positions and hedging in crypto is more expensive than hedging in other assets. And if there isn't volatility there, they're not going to cover those hedging costs. And as for high frequency traders, it's just not worth their while unless there is that volatility on which they can make money. So when we start to get volatility, we will start to see more liquidity. When we start to see more liquidity, we will start to see institutional interest because the asymmetric risk profile is there. There is less downside right now in Bitcoin, to choose one example, than there are in many stocks. There is more upside, arguably, in Bitcoin, to choose one example, than there is in many stocks at these valuations. And this is something that for sure smart institutional investors are thinking about. So something I think that gets missed a lot is in in, in the sort of CFI, DeFi 
don't want to call them wars, but kind of the camps that we have within the crypto ecosystem, right? And this idea that TradFi versus CFI versus DeFi, you know, kind of mindset is that a lot of the of, of liquidity comes from various forms of exchanges. If you can't exchange something, if you can't trade it, if you can't buy it and sell it, just to be as as plain as possible for those of our listeners who aren't as familiar with this terminology or how all this works, if you can't trade something, if you can't exchange it and buy it and sell it, it doesn't have any liquidity. It's it's a stuck asset and it can't provide option value for you. You can't move within it freely. And that is not attractive in many cases. In some cases, you don't mind that, right? All of us are familiar. Well, most people I think who listen to the show are familiar with the idea of buying and holding an asset. Real estate's a great example. You buy some your intentions to hold it for a very long time. If the market makes little moves here and there, you don't necessarily care, right? This is the whole theory behind single family residences or buying your home or owning a home as an asset. Other kinds of things, especially digital assets, are very different. The idea is that you can trade them faster and they are more liquid. And that is meant to be a feature of the asset. If that liquidity is compromised in any way, and there are multiple ways it could be compromised. It could be compromised because people are afraid to sell. It could be compromised because suddenly they're faced with a gigantic tax event if they sell. So they might sell in smaller amounts. It could be because there's some regulatory thing happening that makes people very nervous. It could be there's all it could be because an exchange shuts down. It could be because a bank fails. You know, there are all kinds of reasons why liquidity might be affected. And so I think what's interesting to me is when I think about the TradFi C5 versus DeFi kind of framing, the idea is well, what's really needed is the exchange. The exchange is the functional place where this kind of thing happens. And the more places there are to trade, to exchange these assets, the more optionality you have around liquidity. Uh, but I'm just curious to get your thoughts around the role of exchanges, different kinds of exchanges, and what would happen, because I think this is something a lot of us are back of mind, very concerned about, what would happen if one of the major exchanges suddenly became unable to list a token? Let's not let's leave Bitcoin out of it. I think that is a very unlikely thing. But if another token suddenly were unable to be exchanged for any number of reasons, what might the consequences of that be? Are we looking at another potential major crash? No, over to you, Noel. Lot to unpack there. And you know, stepping back, this this reminds me of that saying, you know, if a tree falls in the woods but no one hears it, did it actually fall? Kind of thing. <laughs> um, if something doesn't trade, it doesn't really have a market price, as you pointed out. However, Bitcoin has had a market price since 2010, effectively. It always will have a market price. Whether that market price is legitimate, legitimate in the sense, does it represent the market opinion at any given point in time? That entirely depends on the liquidity and the distribution of the exchanges that are trading it. With smaller, more liquid tokens, the altcoins, if you will, that does become relevant. That becomes relevant when we're talking about very thin float. If you and I were to exchange 2% of a token which involved, uh, you know, you and I swapping three shares, maybe three tokens, maybe. If that turned out to be 2% of the free float, then you and I could really move the market. That's not representative. And that is going to affect the liquidity. In other words, you're not going to get big orders or, or major investors looking at that because that would be irresponsible of them and they have a fiduciary duty. So liquidity is fundamental. Liquidity does depend on the number of and characteristics of the platforms that allow for the exchange of these assets. And coming back to your last question, unfortunately, we can all still remember, much to our chagrin, what happens in the market if a major platform just disappears or implodes. You know, we're still working through the, the debris of what happened to FTX yep. in November, and it's not quite, not quite over yet, unfortunately. It's another, another headwind. So exchanges are super important. And as for the debate about what is better for the ecosystem, the centralized version or the decentralized version, the centralized version right now is what most institutional investors have to use. They do not have the regulatory authority or the, the permission of their compliance departments to deal on decentralized exchanges. I think that's temporary. I think that will change as compliance departments around the world get more comfortable with this idea. But for now, centralized exchanges are key for this. They provide certain comfort and regulatory cover. And when it comes down to the question, which I get asked a lot, you know, we don't need the institutions in this industry. We don't want centralized exchange. It's anti-crypto kind of thing. And my response is always, who gets to decide? You know, the market will decide. If the market doesn't want centralized exchanges, they will cease to function. But unfortunately, the market does want them. And that's one of the points of crypto. It's the free market. The market decides. 
Now, that's not, never said that's, uh, you know, very hand-wavy. Truthfully, uh, legislation, regulators around the world are grappling with the requirements of, of what centralized, what centralized exchanges should, what rules they should follow. And this is important because it's investor protection. We can all get behind the idea of investor protection. But the, it's like water. It will find the easiest path. It will find a way to move. It just needs to move. And if jurisdictions uh, such as the United States do not get some clear guidelines in place, then the liquidity will move elsewhere. We're already seeing that. If I can throw in a totally different twist, and this is another very significant tailwind that we are not, is being looked in my opinion, and this is relevant mm -hmm. to liquidity, is what is going on in India at the moment. We mm -hmm. saw the wrap-up of the G20 meeting this weekend, and yep. Uh, one of India's goals for being I'll just the interject really quickly to just note for our listeners that India has the presidency of the G20, which is um, so they are setting the tone for a lot of the conversations in addition to some of the content. But please continue, Noel. Absolutely. In fact, they said at the outset that one of their overriding goals for their presidency was to establish global guidelines for crypto regulation. Coming from India, this is fascinating because you've got the central bank wanting to ban it. I mean, even earlier this year, the central bank governor said that uh, crypto assets were, were not even tulips, which is pretty insulting. <laughs> <laughs> but um, you also have the Supreme Court saying that, you know, that the, the um, central bank cannot forbid banks from servicing crypto companies, but no bank wants to, the central bank doesn't approve, et cetera, et cetera. In other words, in India, crypto trading has been muted because of regulatory pressure and the punitive tax rate. However, with India having succeeded in its goal at getting some, in my opinion, toothless guidelines around crypto, still they are indeed global guidelines, we now have India uh, saying that it is going to be focusing on its approach. And that is a massive market. This mm -hmm. is just one milestone in what I'm seeing around the world, Sheila, and that is a steady march toward greater crypto clarity, even in the US. I mean, the, the, the decisions that have come down from courts over the past few months, uh, handing victories to, uh, not to the SEC, but to the crypto companies that the SEC has been doing battle with. It's a march. It's a slow and painful march, but it is a march toward crypto clarity, even in one of the most resistant jurisdictions. But that covers potentially huge market as well. Yeah. And I have to contextualize that as well. So when I first met with the Reserve Bank of India, the RBI back in, oh gosh, it must have been like 2018, 2019 at the latest. Uh, it was just, you know, listen, we've got our universal payments interface. We've got UPI. We've got a universal identification system. Everyone's on it. You know, we don't need any of this stuff. We're already taking a lot of steps to make sure everything is happening. And it's a really fascinating march towards, I mean, frankly, high surveillance, okay? But what's really interesting is you have a populist prime minister in Modi who is somewhat analogous to Trump. I say that recognizing it's a controversial stance, but as a person of Indian descent, I feel very comfortable making the statement. Uh, and yet you had the exact opposite move with respect to crypto in the country for quite a period of time. So this thawing, while it is minor compared to other moves being made, is extremely significant. And the idea that now that I think some of the other moves that were made by the Modi regime have been pretty cemented and they're kind of commonplace and they're sort of a psychological adjustment on the part of the population to the use of these kinds of things, you're now seeing, I think, kind of the next thing, which is, okay, this other thing is happening. Digital assets are blowing up all over the place, maybe not you know, in terms of uh, the price, but in terms of the ubiquitousness, right? There's a clear stickiness here. The U.S. and the SEC there are, are not, frankly, winning their apparent, well, Gary Gensler, I should be specific, Gary Gensler's apparent quest to ban the asset class. That does not appear to be successful. Uh, Europe, the U.K. are moving, and the Middle East, you know, moving at a march pace into this. Brazil, you know, all kinds of places. Um, and so I think India, to some extent, doesn't really have a choice, right? They have to take this very seriously. And they're, you know, no fools over there. They're recognizing what this might look like within their context of, uh, you know, a, a, of the financial system that they have very, very deliberately laid out. Now, this government is not averse in any way to making extraordinarily dramatic changes overnight. Okay, so this is a, a government that, what was it, a few years back, just banned certain bills, just took them off the market with 24 hours notice. So you basically had it was they're a very high denomination paper currency. 
And the idea was you had basically 48 hours to take them to a bank and get them exchanged. And if you didn't, they were worthless. You could not use them anymore. That was rolled out with almost no notice, basically overnight. It caused a huge kerfuffle among certain classes in in India. But the idea was it was an attempt to get black market money and turn it into white money and to say, you're holding this in these giant denominations. You can't do it anymore. So they have no hesitation in doing things super quickly. And so I think that's also important context is if they were to decide we're going to lean into Bitcoin, crypto, certain kinds of products, whatever it is, it would happen potentially extremely quickly. It's not the kind of thing that ever else would need months of back and forth and legislation and this and that and public comment. They would just do it and go. So I think it's one to watch, not just because they have the presence of G20 and that will set a tone, but also because to your point, Noel, it is a massive market that has remained pretty closed in terms of a lot of opportunities to outside, uh, not just investment, that's a different issue, but to outside engagement within the rails that the country runs on. Absolutely. And it's not only a massive market, it's a massive entrepreneurial culture itself that has had to pretty much sit on the sidelines with its contrast waiting for some sort of clarity. Not only that, it is also a culture that is not averse to speculative trading, similar to other economies in Asia, similar to many economies in the developing world, sub-Saharan Africa comes to mind. And when they initially clamped down, they saw it as a threat to the UPI and also to the digital rupee that they're trying to increase the usage of. But that is bucketing crypto into payments use. The fact that they are now aware that, hey, if we let people trade this, there is going to be significant tax revenue behind this. Plus, we're going to be giving people what they want, which generally polls quite well and, and turns out quite well for in the elections. But it's uh, so it, it reflects a growing, a deepening understanding of what crypto can be. And it's understandable. It's difficult for many, for many to get their heads around, let alone uh, you know, leaders of giant economies that have a lot of other things to worry about. But it's significant going back to what you were saying, Sheila, about the India's role in G about India's role in the G20 this year as its president. It did guide it towards some global framework, flimsy global framework, but a global framework. That's a start. You have the IMF actually acknowledging that the point in banning this. It's in the turn on their previous statements. The presidency passes to Brazil in December. Yep. Brazil is very pro-crypto. Brazil has a host of spot ETFs. Brazil's leading crypto exchange is right now in trials with the central bank. On the, on the digital on the digital currency that they're launching. You have banks that are quite happy to surface crypto businesses. In other words, in an entirely different environment, which could push the G20 into an even more accelerated understanding of the potential of crypto assets. And, and stepping back for a second, it highlights what you and I have spoken about before, Sheila, about the one, the complexity, but two, the opportunity of an entirely new asset class that is many things to many people. Crypto is a speculative asset to some. It is a payments rail to others. It is an entrepreneurial platform for many. It is many things, and that is very hard to regulate, but also does present great opportunities for those brave states that are willing to embrace the potential. So let's talk a bit about BRICS, okay? Because I think I have always thought, and I think I even in our first episodes of this podcast, that the innovation in the use of the assets was going to come from the global majority, some call the global South, simply because real problems could be solved in a very obvious way using uh, this this new technology, right? So, and sure enough, that's what we saw. We saw cross-border, we saw the creation of African capital markets, we saw uh, whether you remittances, whatever it is, we've seen a lot of engagement, especially in the payment space coming from the global majority. And with the advent of BRICS emerging, well, not even emerging, but well, maybe emerging in the public consciousness, right? This has been true for a long time. I'm curious to get your maybe a quick history of all of this for our listeners who may not be as familiar. But with the public consciousness finally clocking that this is an extraordinarily powerful alliance, right? I think that perhaps this is a moment where between the G20 presidency passing from one to the other, and a baton, if you will, kind of being passed there, and with the major, major markets, and with the use cases being pretty obvious in some of these economies and, and among some of these societies, you know, how do you think that 
the emergence of that global majority as kind of a unifying in a way force for certain kinds of use cases is going to play. But maybe first, let's start with just kind of a quick overview of BRICS and your view on that and, and how you're seeing the global economy, you know, kind of playing out in, in, in these different alliances. Yeah. Two different paths to take here. One is the expansion of BRICS itself, which yeah. for night just doubled the number of members, more than doubled the number of members. And while a lot of people are jumping on it down, wringing their hands and saying this is the end of the dollar, it's not. However, it is another step towards greater fragmentation. It is yet another crack in the global system of which the dollar is the uh, reserve currency. While the dollar will continue to be the, the lead currency in terms of trade and in terms of hedging, etc., and in terms of central bank reserves around the world, we are going to see more bilateral trade that does eat into demand for the dollar. We are going to see countries figuring out uh, the independent types of platforms, totally obviating the swift dominated network. And this is going to involve digital currencies, blockchain based, some of them perhaps, but it is also going to involve different types of trade vehicles. And this is where crypto can become useful. That's one path to take. The other path to take is indeed what it is being used for in the global south, if you want to call it that. And while the potential for remittances, cross-border transfers, etc., is huge, especially given the costs, we're seeing today, Sheila, that it is actually being used largely for speculation. And this speaks a lot to the relative um, safety networks in the in the various developing economies. Like there, you know, there isn't a state guaranteed pension plan, so you've got to make money where you can. That changes your attitude towards risk. It also contrasts to the developed world attitude towards risk. And this has been something that we've heard from the mouths of Gary Gensler, as well as many of the European economic leaders as well. Safety first, investor protection above all. Whereas in more developing nations, it is, you know, make money how you can. Mm. So just to back out a little bit for some of our listeners. So, so BRICS, the BRICS nations, uh, Brazil, Russia, India, China, South Africa joined in 2010, hence BRICS BRICS. What Noel is discussing about with the expansion is that as of Jan 1, 2024, Argentina, Egypt, Ethiopia, Iran, Saudi Arabia, and the UAE uh, will join the bloc. So when you think about the massive amount of uh, market aside, right, like just the populations of these countries, um, the landmass alone, like in every way, this is a massive, massive coalition that cannot be ignored. And people have been talking about, you know, the way people talked about the Asian tigers, you know, BRIC was a thing for a long time. I don't even know when it when it was founded initially, but been around for a while. With the advent of South Africa, it became a force to be reckoned with. This new move is really, I think, politically, more than even economically, uh, this kind of alliance is, is something that I think is affecting. You're seeing some of this play in the G20. You're certainly seeing reactions from the G7 around how to think about this new alliance and what it's going to mean. And I think it's really important to note that in there, there's no North Korea yet, right? But you've got a number of different actors that the United States government, leaving aside the SEC, but FinCEN, Treasury, are concerned about using digital assets in ways that are, not, let's put it in the most mild way possible, not supportive of American interests. Okay, let's put it that way. And it's going to be really interesting to see what measures, if any, are taken politically to create structure? And are we going to have to very quickly move to a globally unified or at least globally consonant system so that there's going to be the ability for those who want to use some of this uh, this asset movement for illicit funding, money laundering, things like that, are going to have that capacity not kind of blown up, but are going to have it shrunk. I think this is the conversation. It is, it's Again, it's not about markets, not even about use cases. It's about this other thing happening politically that is very concerning to the United States, to Britain, and to some of the uh, of their of their closest allies. But your thoughts on kind of the political aspects of that too? First of all, brilliant idea to detail exactly what the expansion entailed didn't occur to me. So thank you very much for that. Um, and to point out that with the especially with the addition of Saudi Arabia and Iran, the BRICS now control more than half of global oil production. I mean that is massive, especially since one of the reasons the dollar is the global reserve currency is because oil is denominated in dollars. So. While I'm not suggesting that's going to change anytime soon, you can start to see more cracks form. And you mentioned the sort of sanctions resistant 
potential for trade. This is rather than a move towards the need for a more global cohesion, it is a statement that countries don't want it. They don't yep. want global cohesion because they don't want the US or the IMF or, you know, or whoever, or even the G20 dictating the rules anymore. Countries are non-aligned countries. I won't say unaligned countries because some of them are just independent. Countries are less willing to accept the status quo that has been necessary for many decades. Uh, but these countries do have resources that the world needs. They, need, they do have a newfound economic power and they are going to flex it. Of course they are. That is the big change that we're going to see. And this coming back to the whole crypto ethos, the whole crypto narrative, Sheila, is about choice and it is about the unstoppability of that choice. Uh, we all, uh, the IMF even has acknowledged that you can't ban crypto. India agrees with, because it will just go somewhere else. It's going to exist. At the same time, you have entire regions, entire economies, entire blocks deciding that they also want more of a say in the currencies that they use in their trading partners. They don't want to be dictated to so much. It's a fascinating time to watch these uh, tectonic shifts, as it were, and to it, because you and I are in the crypto industry, to have a front row seat to the finance that is going to be powering a lot of the changes that we have coming up. Yeah. And you make an orthogonal but really relevant point around energy, which is right now, you know, Bitcoin mining and this kind of thing it is not really... It doesn't have the attention it had uh, last year, let's say, or even earlier this year. But you're going to see the conversation around energy. You're already seeing this in some of the Republican presidential candidates start to shift and change as this reality around the oil block that you just mentioned really takes root in the American political consciousness. Again, everyone in the energy department already knows all about this. But as this kind of trickles down to folks who may not have of mind, you're going to see this, I think, come up a lot on the campaign trail. And it's going to be interesting to see if Bitcoin mining plays any sort of comes into that conversation at all, or if we've kind of moved past those days of that being kind of a major, you know, uh, skeptic talking point. But there is no question that this block has a tremendous amount of implications on how everything is going to be thought about and the balance of power and how the geopolitics of the situation are going to start to shift. And there is no question, again, that digital assets and the leaving aside digital assets, the flow of funds across borders and freely, especially within these allied countries, and I mean that allied in an economic way, not necessarily politically, regardless, the flow of funds across the, these blocks is going to be increasingly important. And how do you more frictionlessly move money across the border? Hey, well, right? Uh, we have an answer, right? We have thoughts on that, right, Noelle? <laughs> Absolutely. And also the dollar dominance. I mean, we read reports yeah. almost every day, Sheila, that just breaks our hearts about uh, you know, Pakistan can't afford to offload the grain that is sitting in its ports yeah, because it doesn't have the dollars to pay for it, or Kenya doesn't have the dollars it needs to pay for energy, et cetera, et cetera. This dependence on dollars that yeah. are allocated according to who the U.S. is, the Treasury is feeling friendly with at any particular given time. Did you know that China has extended swap lines to Argentina, but the U.S. hasn't? I mean, this is just one example. When the dependence for dollars does create systemic weakness in emerging economies, there is the temptation to think of alternatives. And, you know, what if, Sheila, what if there were an asset that is independent of U.S. monetary policy that could be converted into dollars? What if? <laughs> what if? What if? There were a way to, for them to hold that on their back. And what if in certain economies, this very same asset um, they could own it themselves by harnessing their geothermal power and yep. financing it with construction of mining rigs that also happen to need power generations. Or what if the hydro and, and create jobs and employ people? Uh, yeah, it's well, you know, we've got to leave it there, but I think that's a great place to end. And so when people say to me, well, what's the what are the use cases? I'm going to have use cases around this stuff. I just kind of say, well, what frame are you looking through? <laughs> because I think if you're anyone looking who says that, yeah, anyone who says that is generally sitting in a very comfortable, developed I, economy. That is a very privileged yeah. point of view to have, yeah. no question. Do you have a trusted partner for your crypto trading? SIBO Digital will introduce financially settled margin features on Bitcoin and Ether January 11th, 2024, with physically delivered contracts to follow. Listed and cleared on SIBO's U.S. regulated exchange and clearinghouse, 
and complemented by a liquid crypto spot market for greater ease and access. We invite you to learn more about this and all applicable risk disclosures at cbodigital.com slash coindesk. That's cboedigital.com slash coindesk. For a second episode, I chose Michael and I chatting with Hyun Song Shin, who is the head of research at the Bank for International Settlements, the BIS. When they released their annual economic report, Hyun Song Shin decided to come on to Money Reimagined to preview that report and talk about what it contained. I found this fascinating because it marked the formal introduction of the concept of tokenized deposits and tokenization of real-world assets as being the new fad topic within the digital assets and blockchain communities. Now, my views on this are pretty well known subsequent to this conversation that we had. I do feel that some of the tokenization of RWA is just another way of a token being a token and us putting a new name on the same old thing. I'm not convinced that we won't see some of the exploitation we've seen in the past with previous versions of tokens in this new space. But this conversation marked one of the first times I think this erupted as a discussion topic. And as I think we've all seen over the past few months, since we recorded this episode and since the report was released, this topic has come to dominate the landscape in terms of what's kosher to talk about digital assets and what does the future hold, leading up to and related the OCC's announcement of an upcoming symposium in February. It's going to focus exclusively on tokenization of real-world assets that denigrated crypto and cryptocurrencies which I find a really interesting juxtaposition of concepts uh, that I'm not sure I fully buy. But draw your own conclusions and check out this episode as well. We are going to be diving into the world of CBDCs, money, uh, the future of digital money, the role of central banks and the interfacing with tokenization and lots of interesting stuff there. And we are uh, Absolutely honored to have Hyun Song Shin, who is the head of research at the Bank of International Settlements, the BIS, to join us in just a moment. But just very quickly, Sheila, is there a chance that we get a look at the an early look at the report that will be coming out the time that this podcast airs uh, from the BIS? Uh, we had a look at chapter three on the uh, future of digital money. And any initial kind of takeaways? Well, it's really interesting. I mean, the BIS, of course, has been engaging and supporting and running, actually, CBDC experiments for many years now, uh, including back when I was at the forum, the World Economic Forum, we were working closely uh, with the team there to think about uh, different kinds of CBDC experiments. And so it's interesting to kind of see where those experiments have led the BIS uh, in terms of their current thinking on this. And I'm excited to dive into that with with him today and to, to get a sense of the recommendations, what they're based on. Uh, you know, the the pros and cons. Uh, I have some questions uh, about some of the findings, but uh, let's get into it. Yeah, absolutely. So why don't we bring you in here, Hyun? First of all, just if you don't mind, briefly introduce yourself, tell us a bit a little bit what you've been involved in, and then, you know, give us a kind of a high level uh, synopsis of what is in this chapter three of the broader report that uh, you're working with. Yeah, absolutely, Michael. And thank you, Michael and Shilu for having this uh, discussion. I'm Hyun Song Shin. I'm the economic advisor and head of research at the BIS. We've been working, as you know, on digital innovation and its implications for the monetary system. What we're doing this year is to discuss how tokenization could actually put the monetary system in a way that can really serve uh, real economic uses in a way that actually you know, goes beyond simply uh, the standard payments role of money. So Just to give you some background on this report, we take a historical perspective and we just note that the innovations in the monetary system have coincided with huge leaps in economic activity. You know, one very important development hundreds of years ago was the development of money as ledger entries overseen by trusted intermediaries. And that really coincided with this huge spurt in commerce and trade. And then we went into the digital age when that, uh, you know, those ledger entries became digital rather than simply on paper entries. And we think tokenization could be the next big thing that really expands the capacity of the monetary system to uh, not only improve the things that we're doing today, but to open up the possibility of actually doing things that are not taking place today, but which could be enabled through the through the functionalities provided by by tokenization. 
tokenization is not new. There are already very well-established initiatives in the private sector, both uh, from commercial banks and other private sector groupings, as well as in crypto. What we're saying is what we need there is to have a tokenized version of a CBDC that can knit together all the different elements of the financial system to really increase the scope of money, of central bank money, in the same venue as all these other tokenized uh, assets and other forms of uh, private money to knit together the whole system, you know, open the possibility of new arrangements that can really expand the universe of possible contracting outcome. The final piece of the argument is that we can do this if we have a platform where we can have a tokenized version of CBDC right at the center as the settlement asset. But around that, we would have other forms of money, and we're advocating tokenized deposits as a as a particularly, I think, uh, you know, good form to knit together the various payment means around CBDCs, as well as tokenized securities and uh, you know other financial and real assets. And we call this a unified ledger. So it's unified in the sense that it has money, both uh, the settlement asset the CBDC, as well as private forms of money, as well as other assets. Yeah, we've been talking about the programmability of money has been the term that I've often liked to come back to, to see the power of digital currencies, whether they are private uh, public blockchains, private money, or central bank digital currencies, being integrated into all of these powerful new use cases, smart contracts and so forth. And I've always thought that it just was critical that we had that payment settlement piece of it worked out. So to have you guys sort of frame this in that, those terms, as opposed to just, hey, we're going to take this fiat money concept and make it digital without sort of seeing how it actually enables all of these other things, I think is really important. When you talk about this unified ledger, I'm sure it's a useful term. It's also one that I think conjures up to me a bit of centralization. And then clearly as the BIS uh, representing central banks, I'm not surprised to have read the report and see you advocating really for this central role of central banks, and then even referring to tokenized deposits, you're really in many respects talking about taking the existing banking system uh, and relying on that as a, as a current form of, of money and, and giving that tokenized form. And you did in the report also highlight what you saw as a number of shortcomings of the other model, which is the stablecoin model, where you have these representations of the dollar or, or whatever existing on public blockchains. Come down on why you make that distinction, what you see is the important benefits of this centralized approach, because of course, lots of people in crypto are going to support what they would say is a much more innovative, open system and open standards, right? Once everything is built in this unified, centralized way, it becomes really less interoperable. Now, it's that bigger question of open money, innovation versus centralization that I think is part of the challenge here. And yet it seems there is strong arguments as to why you would take money as something that is uniform and critically tied to a government that you would you would come up with this argument. I think the you know this dichotomy between centralized and decentralized and it may not be exactly the right way to organize this. The unified ledger itself is simply referring to the fact that there are forms of money as well as a settlement asset as well as other types of assets that would figure in various smart contracts that are written that interact with money. So that's the sense in which it's unified. And certainly we don't have in mind some kind of you know, single ledger, one ledger to rule them all. Uh, that certainly is not the idea. You know, there could be more than one for the particular use case. Now, the way that the system might operate, you know, it could operate in a decentralized way, uh, but not in a kind of open blockchain way in that um, uh, it is very much a system with entities and objects that you know, have been, if you like, pre-approved. So in that sense, it's a permission system. But the way that the transactions could take place, I mean, that could itself be decentralized. So I think the distinction is, I think, better posed as if we want to harness the power of tokenization, is it better to go with central bank money and the settlement that it provides together with other forms of private money? Or is it better to go in the direction of the open or the public blockchain? Uh, which is a permissionless chain. I think that's a very, very you know, a deep question. I think one way to think about this is we are very much um, in the business of trying to use technology for real world use. So commerce, trade, real assets, uh, 
Um, and to use this type of platform for everyday activity, I think for, for that reason, um, for that purpose, it just seems like a much better way, much more direct way to just build on what we have already. And I think it's fair to say that, uh, you know, in spite of the great interest and the excitement that crypto generated, the real world applications, I think, are still fairly limited. And I think it's worth thinking why, uh, you know, that's been like that. So, you know, this is not just to detract on crypto as such, but just let's just think about some of the hurdles, why it's so difficult to use a public blockchain, for example, for providing trade credit, you know, supply chain financing for real world trade. So, you know, there what we need to do is to have some kind of assurance that the mapping from the real world asset, you know, like an inventory that's uh, in a ship, map a one-to-one onto a token on a public blockchain. What does that mean? That means that you need to somehow immobilize or lock that real world object so that uh, the token is fully agreed by everyone to be the digital representation you know, of that real world asset. Now, what would that involve? So among other things, what, what that would involve is some kind of legal framework that says, look, if you are the owner of this particular token, then you own that shipment that's in that particular ship that's you know, currently in the, in the Indian Ocean. Now, what would it take for that, uh, for that to take place? Now, in the current system, you know, there would be various registries uh, you know, there would be a shipping registry or a property registry, and it would be a matter of um, making that um, particular, you know, line item in that registry live on the tokenized platform. Now, you know, that's not easy, but I think one can easily imagine how that could be done uh, if there were the right legal framework and the right kind of immobilizing, you know, locking mechanism for that to take place. How would you do that in an in a public blockchain? Um, Especially, you know, if the uh, if the legal framework might not be fully consistent, you know, whose legal framework are we going to use? Is it country A or is it country B? So, so already from uh, right at the outset, there are these very, very sort of much larger, you know, problems that we need to overcome before we can use the technology. And I think it's not an accident that you know these kinds of very, very big legal impediments. This is why I think it's much easier to use the public blockchain technology for crypto, which itself just lives in, in the crypto universe, than it is for, for the real world case. From our perspective, from the perspective of making sure that the financial system, the monetary system is going to serve real world use cases, uh, you know, we feel it's just much more direct route to use something that is already familiar, something that we know already works, then imbue it with the power of tokenization, thereby to really fully expand that uh, capability. So I think it's really interesting, of course, to focus on some of these real world cases that something like this ledger could uh, engender. And I think these are many of these are things that, you know, we've been as an, I think an industry or, or even as, as on this podcast have talked about before and, and been thinking about for many years, you talk about uh, supply chain, you know, uh, opportunities, trade finance. We actually, I think one of our first episodes, Michael, the show was about trade finance, green sill, that collapse and kind of what it indicated were opportunities. Uh, mm-hmm. Of course, in that case, using a permissionless system, uh, green finance, right? There's been a tremendous amount of activity in the crypto blockchain community around uh, carbon. We've done many, many episodes on that here. Uh, it, the, the report, I, this chapter rather, is extremely dismissive of crypto and DeFi, which I found interesting and arguably unnecessary, but that point has landed early on and also leans very heavily, which was not surprising and I think makes a lot of sense, uh, into the idea of the two tiers, right? That you'd have uh, the central bank money, you'd have private money, uh, and that those are essential, and that you don't want to just have the central bank running everything, which of course is something the WEF, as you know, published a, a report under my leadership in 2020 that that would leaned in heavily to the wholesale CBDC example, but said that the retail level, it's hard to make the case. And I think this remains true, that a retail CBDC run by a central bank and managed by a central bank makes a lot of sense versus the current system where you actually have bank money and some of that interface is handled by the private sector, which just has more resources, I think, to, to engage uh, there. But I wanted to talk about that last part a little bit about this wholesale versus retail CBDC, because as I read this, and this is where I, I just was curious, because I don't know that I quite grokked it, 
Uh, I think you're making the case in this chapter that wholesale CBDC, I think we can set aside. I think that's extremely obvious, very well proven, multiple pilots and experiments, and et cetera. At the retail level, though, it did seem like you were saying that retail CBDC uh, is superior to stable coins. And I didn't quite follow that argument, if I'm even paraphrasing it correctly. And I'd love to hear you say a bit more about that. Yeah. Um, yeah, Shelley, the, um, I think the the part that you're referring to is where we compare uh, stable coins and uh, tokenized deposit. I mean, we do have a little bit of a discussion on retail CBDCs, but the thrust of the chapter is more about the way that uh, a tokenized version of a CBDC in a wholesale form could really you know, play the anchoring role for a tokenized deposit system. And the main argument that we use is that is built around the concept of the singleness of money. And the singleness of money refers to the fact that you know, it's, uh, it's something that we're all used to, uh, you know, whether we actually pay in cash or whether we use our app and uh, you know, make a bank transfer. We don't necessarily distinguish private forms of money and central bank money when we, when we make a payment. You know, a, a dollar is a dollar. So whether we use a bank transfer or whether we use cash. And I think that's really one of the triumphs of the, of the current monetary system. And it's very uh, interesting to think about how that came about. Now, if you, if you think about how the, the current two-tier system worked, when a customer of bank A makes a transfer to a customer of bank B, there isn't a direct transfer of the liabilities of bank A, you know, as in a stable coin. Now, that's a direct transfer as a bearer instrument. What happens today when you make that bank transfer is bank A debits your account and then uh, informs bank B. Uh, and then bank B credits the account of the, of the receiver. And in the meanwhile, there's something very important that goes on in the background, which is that um, the central bank debits the account of bank A and credits the account of bank B. So in effect, what's just happened is that that transfer takes place in central bank money. So even though it's a private payment, uh, that settlement takes place in central bank money. So it's in effect, like you've used central bank money to make that payment. And that's what really is at the heart of the singleness of money. Our argument against stable coins is that it's much more of a bearer instrument. So you know, when you make a payment using a stable coin, it is a direct transfer. Um, and uh, so, the, so the liability is transferred directly to the receiver. And what we've seen is that to have a property like the singleness of money, when you have stable coins as being the main form of payment, you need some other mechanism to actually sort of maintain that. I mean, it could be some kind of you know, rebalancing. It could be a pool of some kind. But in general, even if the deviations from par are small, there will be deviations from par. Even a very small deviation, if there is a deviation from the singleness of money, it actually detracts from the purpose of money where you simply don't give it a second thought as to what this is worth. I mean, if there is an exchange rate, it's really an asset rather than, you know, rather than money. Stable coins can serve as a vehicle asset uh, where you can transfer from one asset to another. We just feel that it's much simpler, much more elegant if you just have money having the singleness property. So this is why we're actually advocating this structure where you have central bank money as the settlement asset, which underpins everything. But then all the consumer-facing activity is done by other private intermediaries. So, well, I think the predicate there is that you, the most trustworthy actor in all of this is the central bank. And I guess I'm not entirely sure that holds up. And I, I would welcome Michael. I think, you know, we get on this show many times. We've talked about his experiences in Argentina and, and times when a central bank hasn't necessarily had the ability or the authority or, you know, insert the noun uh, to to provide that uh, singleness, essentially. And, and, and a lot of that, of course, is just historically what we've seen, not necessarily that it's a superior system. It's a system that has existed for a while. Now, I think there are reasonable minds can certainly argue, uh, as I think you are in this paper, that we should lean into that system, you know, the two tiers, the central bank holding the ultimate uh, account, system of account. All of those things, I think, are, are certainly, you know, plausible. Uh, but I also think that there are other opportunities that have been opened up when you think about open permissionless systems 
uh, that in some of the the areas that you talk about in the paper uh, that about the tokenization of assets, particularly around supply chain work and other things like that, where you could have different models that I think uh, reasonable minds could also lean into and support, including many folks we've had on the show. But Michael, I'm sure you have a lot to say about the signals of money as a general matter. Uh, so. Mm. Yeah, like, I'm glad you mentioned Argentina. I, I, in fact, it does lead me to a bit of a segue, but just just my own thoughts on it. I think of this concept. I, I like it. I like the idea of the singleness of money. This because the sort of the, the the common expectation that a dollar is a dollar, right? But I think it's a social construct. I think it is something that we all agree to be the case, and I actually believe that that happens in many cases in an organic way that can happen quite independently of a central bank. And again, in places like Argentina. Uh, where I spent six years, it, from time to time, it would be around some other reference point and not the government's central bank money because there was no trust in that central bank. So I think, you know, in an environment like now, where we've had moments where we've had bank failures, we've had uh, a host of questions around monetary policy and the efficacy of that, and an increasingly decentralized internet itself that opens up all sorts of different new mechanisms for value exchange that are quite outside of the norms of this. It's going to be very interesting, let's just say that, to see the push and tug, the push and pull, if you like, between this vision of what a singleness of money is and an alternative. And I, I, um, I think people have often argued that the, the, the claim against the wildcat money experience in the United States at the turn of the century is often dismissed as, of, oh my God, this, there was completely different reference points. But there's a whole lot of actually very reasonable reasons why those bank-issued or state-issued banknotes started to sort of vary. And it had a lot to do with geography and separation from bank branches as opposed to anything else. So there's a world I can imagine where it all just hews towards an accepted standard. We, we don't have much time, so I think maybe I was going to get you to talk a little bit about the interoperability question, because that actually speaks to some of this. But I think maybe one element that's important in the BIS being there as this reference, international reference point is important. How do you incorporate the idea of a, a, a currency exchange in this? You're absolutely right, Michael. I mean, just to go back to your previous point, of course, uh, you know, money is a social construct. The duty of the central bank, of course, is to preserve the value of money. And that has, you know, several aspects. One is to make sure that the purchasing power of money is preserved. That's making sure that inflation doesn't get out of control. It's, it also means you want to have the value of money so that the value of your currency relative to someone else's currency, which can act more as a as an anchor, is also stable. And that means your exchange rate, your currency shouldn't collapse in value uh, in, in exchange rate terms. That's, that's also a very important notion. So I guess you know, this is very much tied in with the core role of central banks to defend the value of money, to preserve the value of money by conducting monetary policy, by conducting all its prudential you know, duties in such a way that money exactly does what it's supposed to do, which is to serve its role as the unit of account and the medium of exchange, but in a stable way. Now, on your point about the interoperability uh, between central banks, I mean, the focus of uh, this year's chapter is very much in a domestic context. So we're thinking of, uh, uh, of this notion of unified ledger, first of all, in a domestic context. Uh, so there's only uh, you know one central bank uh, you know in the story that we're telling, and then you know we will have the private sector intermediaries. That will be the main point of contact with the private sector. Of course, you you know we can go beyond uh, this particular notion and imagine a platform where there is more than one CBDC. And in fact, you know what we've done at the BIS is to look at the so-called multi-CBDC platforms, and you know we have projects like Project Embridge, Project Dunbar. Mm -hmm where we have you know, experimented with several CBDCs all on the same programmable platform. We don't have commercial bank money in that kind of platform because we were just focusing on how the different CBDCs would be you know, interacting. All those uh, you know, experiments show that uh, you know, there's nothing special about having more than one CBDC there. Okay. Uh, you, know, you just need to have you know, all of them that are sort of satisfy all the prudential requirements and you know, have the, the consensus mechanism operating in a way which operate on the CBDCs directly rather than on other tokenized assets. So I think the interoperability in that sense is not an issue. I, I am going to have to cut it short, unfortunately. I, I'd, I'd love to hear very, very quickly, uh, though, 
in just one sentence, like what sort of support are you getting from central banks around the world for this approach? Is there buy-in? Absolutely. Well, I mean, you know, this is not science fiction. This notion of a of a tokenized environment where we have, uh, you know, central bank money. You know, there is a project running at the New York Innovation Center. It's mm -hmm. at the New York Fed. They have a project on tokenized deposits, and of course, the the Federal Reserve is providing the tokenized form of of central bank money in that context. It's you know, it's an mm -hmm. experiment. It's yeah. so much more to pursue in this. We'll have to get you back. Unfortunately, we have to call it short. Hyun, uh, it was a great pleasure to have you on, Hyun Son Shin, from uh, head of research at the BIS, the Bank of National Settlements. Sheila Warren, thank you very much for being with us. There is so much more to talk about this topic. I think that we are early days in this, and I'm really looking forward to seeing how your research develops and how it's accepted both by central banks, but also obviously the broad uh, users of money around the world. I think you're going to find there's some contentious uh, responses to some of it, but it's all, it's all very important stuff and very interesting. So thank you so much. I hope you all have a wonderful end of year and a happy, healthy, safe, and joyful new year. There's lots going on in the world. So my wish for all of you is that you remain safe and in the company of people that you love. Thanks so much and stay tuned for future episodes of Money Reimagined.